Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. Welcome to episode three of our second season. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of hosting Professor Margarita Saona from the University of Illinois, Chicago. On the 24th of November, 2021, the co-organizers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro, had a conversation with Margarita in front of a live audience. What you are about to hear is an edited recording of this event. You'll hear Dieter and Ian talking with Margarita about her work as a literary scholar trying to find her way through the health humanities. You'll also hear about Margarita's experience of being a heart transplant patient and how this impacted her writing and her thinking. That's all from me. Over to Dieter, Ian and Margarita. So hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another conversation about arts, humanities and health. I'm Dieter de Klerk. I teach film and media at the University of Kent. And uh, with Ian, I run this series where we're trying to create dialogue between health humanities and, and between medicine. And we're really excited, Margarita, that you can join us today. So Margarita Seona from the University of Illinois, Chicago. And we'll, we'll be talking with Margarita about her uh, research and also her poetry and short fiction writing. And as a literary scholar and author who examines her own writing from a heart transplant patient's perspective. So I think that will be extremely enriching for us, Margarita, to talk about this topic with you. Dieter's already kindly done some of the introduction for Margarita. I'll just say that we welcome her very much to this session. She undertook her um, undergraduate, I think, her work in linguistics and literature in Peru and gained her PhD in Columbia in, in New York and is now head of department in Hispanic and Italian studies in the University of Illinois. And actually, I've never yet asked you how you integrate Hispanic and Italian. Um, her work focuses on, on gender, memory, empathy, the interaction of health, a, a rigorous understanding of what it means to apply methodology in the humanities to make sense of memory and empathy. As Dieter has already noted, she has been public about her experience as as somebody who's experienced significant illness and been recipient of um, a heart transplant and also prior to that had a period of time with cardiac support through mechanical machines. So it's a huge privilege to speak to her, particularly important for us as well to cover something that we've not yet covered in great detail, which is the ability of poetry to communicate uniquely and to provide a space to explore complex concepts around health and illness. Uh, and that's not something that we've yet done yet reading Margarita's poems it becomes immediately apparent um, how much you can use poetry to explore complicated concepts and ideas to communicate and enlighten so we welcome her and um, Margarita our traditional first question is something along the lines of please tell us your connection to this theme uh, and tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to become somebody who is so embedded in the arts and the humanities and with a connection to medicine well, thank you, Dieter and Ian, for the introduction. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm so happy. I've been following the conversations since they started last year, and you've had some incredible people invited, so to be counted among them, it's quite an honor. I think that I've had a curiosity for a long time of the connections between art and the effect it has on us about literature and how words make us uh, feel things and how images make us feel things. 
I had these curiosities for a long time. My previous book uh, had to do with art and, and collective memory. And I was dealing with the problem of how we can watch an exhibit of photography and be connected to the history that is connected to those photos, even when they are not necessarily, they may, they may not be in a narrative sequence, uh, and they are about things that did not happen personally to us, but how can they move us? And so I tried to deal with that in the context of uh, the Peruvian period of violence during the last two decades of the 20th century, um, where there were like close to 70,000 people killed between uh, Shining Path forces and the government forces. But I tried to approach this idea that we can remember that uh, through the effect of art, of the arts of uh, monuments, memorials, uh, spaces, museums. And that was a new topic for me since uh, my background was as a literary scholar. I had been trying to to bridge this idea that there is a, a material body and there is a body of, or there are emotions that are not in the body. <laughs> and these connections between what happens outside and what happens inside as a continuum that is activated in different ways and was trying to understand those activations. And I had just published that book when I had cardiac event, first cardiac surgery, diagnosis of heart failure. Uh, and when I thought I was recovering, I had this kind of fatal fibrillation from which I woke up several days later, tied to all sorts of machines and um, was able to leave the hospital after two months with ventricular assist devices and a transplant list. And then I received finally a transplant in January of 2017. Getting back to poetry, uh, a little bit before that, I was finishing the book on memory and I was feeling that I was working with, in my mind, with sound and words and just trying to, to write little sonnets or just putting things together in a creative way because I needed to get a little bit away of what I had been researching. And this happened and I started writing a lot and I started writing from the very first time I ended up in the emergency room. In that period, I had this collection of poems and I also had a blog that I had been writing on uh, Caring Bridge. Uh, there is a platform for patients and their families. And I felt that my, my writing was having an impact on people. So I started moving to a series of questions that I wanted to answer. And one of them was, why did I write in different genres at different moments? And also why these things that I was writing that were almost like something that was natural for me to do at the time. That was, I was not you know, studying and, and trying to build something that was very exhaustive and, and rational like my book, you know, my latest book that, in which I worked a lot but I felt that these writings were having a different impact on people. And so trying to reflect on all that, I just started studying and reading everything I could on the topic, memoirs, books by doctors, books by patients. And I went to the conference that you guys had in, in Kent and 
that also helped to kind of solidify some of the things that that I had been pursuing and give them uh, more shape. And now I'm trying to to create classes to introduce students in Spanish and Latin American literature and culture to health perspectives in those areas. Well, thank you for for sharing your your story. And did you ever find an answer to that question about why different genres at different moments? Well, it's very personal. I don't know that it's always like that. For me, poems normally come out of an image or a sentence that I have in my mind and that is kind of insisting in it doesn't go away until I put it in writing and then things come around it in the shape of a poem. And the blog that at turns was just simple information, but at turns, and that was just, you know, I want to communicate this to my family and friends, but at times it was kind of a need to reflect and to try to understand through the written uh, word. And last time we talked, I remember Ian saying also that, you know, he thinks with a pencil <laughs> or with a pen. And I, I feel that I, I do too. You know, sometimes writing, writing by hand, sometimes with a computer, but, you know, I need to start kind of unpacking ideas. And that is different from what happens when I write poetry. Do you find, uh, we've spoke a lot about how you use art to make sense of memory. And it feels to me like there's a very two-way creational state between what we write about or how we express our memory as, and how that also informs our memory. The two things kind of change, you know, if we try and describe our memories, it sometimes changes what they are. And I've always viewed my own memories as a, as a very fluid guide to past events, but not really a very accurate statement of what truly happened. You talked about using art to make sense of memory and art to make sense of the world. And you do that both in your personal experience, but also in your work studying, for example, experiences of others in Peru. And I I wonder, is that something to talk a bit more about? How does art help you make sense of memory? Well, we we know what you said. It's not that we can trust memory as a real account of what happened, right? It's the way we process our past at given moments. And, and something that happens is that memories are, are constructed, right? And they acquire more fixed forms the more we repeat them. But something that can happen with art or what I wanted to do was to, to look at the evocative power of art. The idea that it's not that it is kind of complicated because something that I was looking at is that some of these exhibits, museums, etc., are aimed mostly for those who did not go through the horrific experience, right? And that sometimes the closer victims to a tragedy prefer some other ways to, to memorialize them than the things that are created for a general public. But one of the things that was interesting to me is this effect in those of us who had not gone through the terrible experience. One example was 
a particular exhibit of the remains from a mass grave where the forensic anthropologists had collaborated with photographers to take pictures of the pieces of clothing recovered from there. Lots of those were children, hats and pants and shoes. And it was an extremely powerful, moving exhibit. What I thought was that when we see uh, a little shoe that is recovered from being buried for 20 years, we feel something. We can understand that a child was buried there. Even if we never knew that child, we can imagine the pain of the people close to that child. It's not that we can exactly feel that pain, but what I felt is that we, and and a lot of people have written about it and have different words for it, but some people talk about prosthetic memory or post-memory. And I think we all struggle to express this because we don't want to appropriate somebody else's pain. But I do believe that something happens in our brains that we can come closer to understanding what that loss means. That if we just hear 20 children were killed, and that sounds horrific, but when we see the photograph of the shoe, we understand it differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on the evocative powers of art. And I think with your own work and your, your collection of poems, it, it's also in your own work that you know we see the very strong evocative power of art. And I was wondering if you wanted to tell us a little bit more about the, the creative process behind um, your collection of poems and if you'd be so kind enough maybe to share one of your poems with us. Sure. Well, something that happened in, with this collection of, of poems was that a lot of it came from trying to process just shocking things, things that take us out of our daily just processing of information and and becomes kind of a shock to the system physically and cognitively. One of the things that happened was, for example, dealing with medical terminology and medical terminology in English, which is my second language. So I would play with some expressions like heart failure, what does it mean? And what does it mean for a heart to fail? And, you know, one of the first poems came out out of that, or sensations, and like when the the ventricular assistance devices create kind of a constant flow of of processing the blood through the heart because the heart is not pumping. But since there's no really a pump, there is not, or I don't know, I have to explain this, but it's not, you know, uh, a pumping in the sense that, that we have systole and diastole, right? So there's no heartbeat. It's very disconcerting as a body not to have a heartbeat. That is when I created this poem, Tin Heart, that I'm going to read. It's, well, I'll read it and and then we can discuss it. Tin Heart. Tin, plastic, metal, something that is not made of who I am. DNA and memories set in motion by a heartbeat. The gods of technology granted me a second life. A tin heart pumps the life that animates my body, my DNA, my memories. 
But when I rest my hand on my chest, searching for my heartbeat, the rhythm that used to be the soundtrack of my human life, the only thing I feel is the flat humming noise of a refrigerator. That came from that experience because there, there was indeed a, a humming. Just trying to interpret like, what is this thing inside my body that sounds like a machine that allows me to be alive and I was going to work and everything else with this thing <laughs> and going to sleep. And so some of the poems came from that alienation, right? Dissociation from one's own body. And as I read more poetry and more works related to experiences of illness, I realized how this estrangement, you know, for to use that formalist term, it's part of what makes some of us go to poetry or, or painting or some other manifestation of like what I do when I feel other. It feels to me so powerful. I mean, listening to your poems is so powerful because they create a space in which you're describing your experiences so eloquently, but also it allows the listener to recreate in their own minds to some degree what it may or may not feel like or to begin to imagine it or to begin to understand the experience of illness from a different perspective. And I think that there's really very little that can do that other than poetry in that sense or or extraordinary narrative and you're obviously comfortable talking about this and using this to illustrate the complexities of experience and memory but what's it like teaching from this that must you have such a wealth of experience you teach from the soul and from the heart and you teach with candor but you're teaching from yourself too it's very complicated to understand what that must feel like well thanks for saying that because i i don't think that i'm always a great teacher and I keep trying to be. You know? I started teaching very young, and it has taken me a while to be more comfortable teaching and, and be more open with my students. Uh, so I, I do think that I have achieved some of that, but it has not been natural or easy for me. I think when I was young, there were lots of insecurities and do I really have the capacity to teach something to these people <laughs> and and what put me in this position that I am the one who tell them what they need to know and perhaps I need to try to sound like I really know these things <laughs> and I think with age we become more relaxed about that to be a more effective teacher I need to teach about the things that I care about. Although I care about weird things too, but it's hard sometimes to get students to be passionate about the metric of poems of, you know, or rules of versification and, and rhyme. But more people care about story. And so I think that I can share more, for example, my preoccupation on how literature deals with horrible things that have happened in Latin American countries and how literature responds to that, or now this preoccupation with health, I think I need to tell students where I come from. I cannot pretend that I'm totally objective when I teach these things, or that I come from a superior place that can just see things as a 
panoramic view. We always have a point of view, right? One of our um, participants has asked, uh, Rose has asked a very nice question, what do you most want your students to learn? I think that I want them to, I want them to learn to read and uh, read in this wide meaning of the word that is to take on and interpret signs of different kinds, right? To read texts, but to be able to use the same analytic tools at the same time allow themselves to be moved in understanding what is happening, you know, to read movies, to read paintings, to read a space and people around them. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I find most interesting talking to you, I mean, many things and many things move me and humble me listening to you, but you balance that incredible sense of an emotional understanding of our world and a deep personal experience of the world with rigor and methodology. And you were telling us, I remember when we, we last spoke around how when you were working on your Memory Matters in Transitional Peru project, you sourced and had to teach and learn a whole range of different analytical techniques in order to make sense of that. And that moving between complex techniques and theory and personal experience and holding them both in tension at the same time strikes me as a remarkable thing to do. I mean, can you tell us more about the kinds of approaches that you use to analyze and think about memory and the, and the techniques that you've pulled on for thinking about your Memory Matters project? I, as I told you, I, my background was in strictly in, in literature and, well, criticism. I was writing a book about representations of masculinity in literature in Peru at that time. But I saw this photo exhibit and it just kind of completely got obsessed about it and tried to explain how this exhibit was having an impact in Peruvian society. And so I abandoned that book for a while. I finally was able to, I actually, when you were presenting me, you said that I'm currently the head of Spanish. Luckily, I'm not <laughs> anymore. So this last year I had a sabbatical that allowed me to finish the masculinity book <laughs> once and for all. <laughs> so I abandoned that book and started studying about memory and photography, reading books that are really basic, like Rolambach, uh, Camera Lucida, uh, Susan Sontag on photography, and started from the kind of ABCs of the language that had been used for photographic um, analysis. And then I realized, okay, it's not just photography, it's an exhibit, there are curators, there is a space, there is an architecture built around it. And so really started to look at the things that had been done mostly around a memory of the Holocaust. And then I also started to ask different questions that were, yes, but why can I say that this moves me? Or why can I say that I remember the Holocaust when I obviously wasn't there? <laughs> and so I started reading all the people who had uh, written about that from a cultural studies perspective, like Marianne Hirsch, for example, and her, all her post-memory project, but then try to ask questions about this sort of memory and its connection with empathy and the connection between empathy and art 
and I started to try to read, to find out studies that had tried to understand what happens in our brains when we see art or what happens in our brains when we remember things and, and then trying to connect the studies that were made about kind of recalling something oneself and the studies that are about how to feel empathy for someone else's experience and see the relationship with those two processes that are supposedly different suggests that, well, they might be the same. They might be kind of similar things that are happening in our brains when we remember and when we try to understand what happens to a, another person. Because the experience is removed from us in both cases. I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned about the masculinity project, which is currently on hold, but it ties in with a, a question we have coming in that your interest in gender and, and how that has informed your work, has it informed your work on the heart or indeed your experience as a patient? And if so, how? I think it has. And I don't know if in a straight line, but it, it has in different ways. One of the things I learned early on was from my mentor in my undergraduate years, uh, Susana Rice, an Argentinian Peruvian professor who had studied classics in Germany. And she was this really rigorous scholar, just wonderful. You know, she would teach theory and she would teach Latin and everything was really clear and well organized and well argued. Then she had a sabbatical and starting shifting towards feminism. And I remember her saying at a conference something like, where I was taught to pretend that I didn't have a body and to pretend that I can be absolutely rational as if we were all these mental or rational beings and I think that that was a wonderful introduction to feminism for me because it was this, yeah, I don't have to deny that I am a person, that I have a body, that I am writing from a particular perspective. Um, that is a perspective that is in a society that is deeply patriarchal. And so this notion of embodiment I think that has been an underlying current in everything I do since then. That ties in with, the, with this, this question that I was talking about with colleagues at my university today about the myth of the disembodied researcher, that we're all brains on a stick and that's what we ought to be in order to be objective in our research. And I'm so struck by how your experience, your subjective experience with illness is so central to your creative practice as a poet and, and how moving that is. And, and we talked about that in your teaching as well. But do you feel like there is a place for Margarita, the researcher, to be open about that subjective experience? And, and is that allowed to be part of the conversation? Or is that seen as something that, oh, no, that's too subjective and research ought to be objective and we all ought to pretend that you know, we don't have genders and one can be a, an expert on feminism but one can't say that I have lived experience as a as a woman or one can be an expert on depression but one can't say oh my experiences with depression will you know inform this research project well actually 
there's so many things that come into my mind right now, but but I think that what's his name, the the author of the Noon Demon, that book on depression. Um, I think the name escapes me as well, but it's probably not. Yeah, right? I think that that was an early attempt to do that, to theorize depression from a first-person perspective for somebody who had suffered from it, right? So that is my quest right now, to try to do the kind of work that doesn't uh, need to deny who I am. And, and in the introduction of my Memory Matters Interstitial Peru book, I, I also talk about my own experience briefly and saying how I thought I didn't have the, the right to really talk about these issues because I had not been a victim of this and how many years it took me to realize that it's my story too. I think that one important thing is to acknowledge our privilege. And and I was uh, re-listening to some of the of the podcast and I think one of the very first ones, I think it was your colleague, Ian. It was my historian colleague, it'd be Chris Millard. Yes, um, that he acknowledged the fact that he was now able to do interdisciplinary work because he had a more established career. That is exactly what is happening to me right now, that I proved myself in the American academia with my first couple of books. Uh, I got to be full professor. I got to be the head of the department. So my, my book on masculinity that is finally being published, I, I had said publicly that I had finished the manuscript and I had been talking to the usual academic presses. And then a friend of mine who uh, had been an assistant for the academic press that had published me in Peru earlier told me, hey, I've, uh, I'm starting this new publishing house. It's a feminist publishing house. Uh, I want to publish your book. And I was able to tell her, sure, because I know that I'm not going to be scrutinized now about where I'm publishing. It felt good and it felt fun to be able to publish with this young editor. I probably would have hesitated if this was my first book when I was an assistant professor. So I think that now, you know, if I publish, great. And if I don't, I don't think I'm necessarily going to be too harshly penalized for that. But I want to try to write in a style that feels more personal, want to try to connect this person that I am, that is very intellectual, that is uh, wants to think about hard things, wants to try to understand the things that she doesn't understand, but that also has a past and emotions and feelings and a body that gets sick and all of that. <laughs> also, I need to be aware that that is because I'm tremendously privileged. You remind me as we, as we were speaking of Charles Taylor's book, The Ethics of Authenticity, actually exploring the incapability and the improperness of trying to separate human experience from what we do. He was talking a lot about um, the importance of including our, our humanity and our experience within our analyses and within our thinking and the idea that we are not just as Dieter said, brains on sticks. And he was talking a little bit about medicine, but he said, uh, and I can quote, because I happen to have the book sitting on my desk, not for today, but just because it was there propping up my thinking and propping up a computer monitor. Uh, and he said that uh, if we are to properly treat a human being, we have to respect this embodied dialogical temporal nature 
runaway extensions of instrumental reasons such as the medical practice that forgets the patient as a person that takes no account of how the treatment relates to his or her story and thus of the determinants of hope and despair that neglects the essential rapport between cure giver and patient all these had to be resisted in the name of the moral background and benevolence that justifies the applications of instrumental reasons themselves and you know it's the sense that that the experience of us profoundly matters and is the ground in which we interpret how we deliver good clinical care so it's very it's i haven't gone too much off piste but i think your poetry takes me into those places and your answers did there you talked a bit about the therapeutic aspect of creative writing and you've told us as well you've done some work with clinicians around therapeutic writing and so for you is your writing therapeutic and as well as creative, as well as interpretive? And how do you bring that into your work and practice? I have resisted the label of therapeutic, but I think that I need to accept that it is. I think that what I don't like about that is that when I write, I don't think that I want to give my writing, uh, this, this personal writing, I don't want the pressure of it to have to have a purpose of to, or to be meaningful. I just want to write because I need to write. But that said, I think that the act of writing, one of the things that, that it gave me, an anchor for the self, like particularly the early poems I wrote with the diagnosis where it's kind of this need to understand some things, but in the more most critical moments, I felt that when my body was completely intervened and nothing was working, lungs or heart or, or kidneys, and I couldn't talk, to be able to grab a, a marker for the acrylic board and scribble something was, I, I felt that I needed to remind people that I was a, a person sometimes and that and, you know, sometimes the, the doctors will come into the room and start talking. And I wanted to say, you know, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and so writing in very in a very literal sense uh, was from just saying, you know, I don't, I don't want more drugs or whatever, to writing a poem or writing an entry in the blog were uh, a form of affirmation, right? And then something else that we discuss is also the, the role of distraction, that writing or just doing something, but for many of us that something is, is writing, can distract you from pain, can distract you from specific concerns that you might have and might be just too overwhelming or, and making you obsess. So I see those two clear ways in which, in which it can be therapeutic, this assertion of the self, in moments when you need it, because there are times when you should forget about yourself too, but there are moments when you need to assert it, and this kind of distraction from pain and worry. I um, share your sense of being on the receiving end of clinicians who don't seem to realise that you are a human and present too. I remember as a child having significant surgical interventions for some orthopaedic stuff, and the consultant wardrobes would come and stare down at you as some curious exhibit and discuss you in ways that almost meant you were not present. It was a terrible thing, all of which has informed my own practice with rule number one that I, I never talk to somebody from above their own eye level. Right. So I spend a lot of my ward rounds kneeling by bedsides or sitting on the floor 
I had those doctors too, um, a lot who would definitely come to my level, even hold my hand. Doctors who, when they came in, were always smiling, even though I was you know, in a pathetic <laughs> state of being. I, I have a lot of doctors who play that other role. Agreed, I want to thank you for the metaphor, an anchor for the self, which is how I think about my research, actually. And I was wondering, uh, for you, if you've got your creative practice, you know, your short fiction, your your poetry, how does what you do there, how does that writing connect to the writing you do as a researcher? Well, I think that it also informs it, right? I The, the latest academic article I sent, I'm analyzing Jean-Luc Nancy's Lintrouve from the perspective of this Israeli-French Theories, Braha Ettinger, who has a theory of the matrixial, which is very complicated, but it wants to be a kind of a feminist approach to psychoanalysis that is not based on the idea of castration, but in the idea of connection. All this to say, maybe I don't need to tell you the whole article, but <laughs> to say that I tend to research things that I feel are relevant to me and just trying to understand, for example, how this philosopher, Jean Luc Nancy, who wrote about his heart transplant, is showing the, the wonderful things that he's doing, but there's an aspect that I got from my experience that I do not see reflected in his approach, and I'm trying to complement that with this feminist perspective. So I think that there are the interconnections between these things that are taking me in, into ways into in which, yes, the my research is also an anchor for the self. I'm reading now, I just started this fascinating book that is called Transplant Gothic. It's um, a research on Gothic literature around transplants. Includes, of course, Frankenstein, but other things too. And I'm very curious about it. So, you know, new, new research projects are always exciting in that sense and start to, to looking at things that, for me, concern me personally. We've had a couple of comments and questions in the um, in the Q and A, and because this will go out on on a podcast as well, I won't, I won't read out the personal details in great in great detail. But but one question has talked about how when she had a, a shocking change in her physical health, the process of making art that she felt driven to to help her understand, but also says at the same time I understand the risk or reducing it to something therapeutic. And she said, particularly with women's work, this can be a risk. Do you feel like the question of genre in some way um, becomes irrelevant as you are grappling with what happened to you? Uh, it's the sense of analysis, therapy, making sense of something. Is genre important? What drives you to writing, making, using writing to making sense of things? I think we've covered some of that, and I apologise if I've mangled the questions I often do. Is genre important or is it the process? I think it's the process. And there is this wonderful blog by Laura Donald, uh, Heart Details. She was diagnosed with heart failure in her early 30s. Um, it's been going on for 10 years, her, her heart failure. And she has this beautiful, and she's doing a PhD right now. She does all sorts of beautiful things like cross-teaching and 
uh, origami uh, embroidery about around the topic of what things that are happening to her heart. And she also writes, so she does the both things, you know, these very um, manual labor and, and things that are also in her case, a lot of them seen as typically feminine, right? Like embroidering or, or cross-stitching uh, or knitting. But I think that she turns this into such an expressive medium and that accompanied with her writing. So it's this really multi-genre expression of, of her process. And I think her purpose that I think is not only self-expression, but also create a place of education of others, you know, that others can come into this and and share their experience or relate to what she's going through. Reminds me a little bit of Bevan Stiles' book. Uh, she's a researcher in uh, Baylor uh, University, and um, she worked with her sister, who's an artist, to reinterpret and examine her own medical images and then has critiqued and understood the processes involved in that creative pathway and understanding and, and the layers of reflection within that as images and information is reprocessed and re-understood and then the process of doing that is is considered is is very complex and clever and moving at the same time and just shows the power of the humanities to bring to life bring to the light the things that are just too complicated normally for words to explain uh, which I think again is comes back to somehow something that poetry does so especially well. Yeah, and I think especially with your going back to the poem that you share with us, Margarito, the the first opening lines with tin, plastic, metal, something, and how they are each on a different line, and the the, the kind of form of poetry, and I think the those words which I normally know, I know the word tin, I know the word plastic, but the way you've put them by themselves, they become so evocative, and I think it gets to the very specific things that you can do with particular kind of art forms and i'm really grateful that you've talked to us about poetry today i'm going to make a, a small segue to one of the questions that we've had about somebody who also is an artist and i'm really grateful for people sharing their personal stories today um and uh, this person is interested in how you come to conceptualize the transplant the incorporation of another person's organ into your body and the memory of the donor so this is somebody who's also been making art based on experience as a bone marrow donor for their brother and what it means for the brother to have their blood in in their body yeah that is uh a lot of what my book deals with, or there are several poems from the very first time that that they uh, talked to me about a transplant. I it was really hard for me to think that I was waiting for somebody to die to to get their heart. Uh, Hypothetical heart uh, is a poem that deals with that from that very first time. And then like being in the transplant list. At that time, I was still in denial and don't think, didn't think it was going to happen. And, and then being in the transplant list, uh, if I may read two poems, they are not too long. An available heart. Sharing the fate of the carrion bird, deny the elegance of a bird of prey, I will just sit tight and wait for the call. I know I'm not an active killer, only someone whose subsistence depends on someone else's death. We can circle around the ideas and the words 
we can present it as the gift of life or as a mere twist of fate, or we can talk about a heart becoming available as if it were something that arrives fresh from the store when in season. One nurse said, you know, the summer brings so many motorcycle deaths. And so I cannot think about the actual heart. I cannot help but think that the actual heart is now beating in someone else's chest. I imagine him strong, young, risk-loving, full of life. I imagine he has a mother, perhaps even a child. But for this to happen, I just need to wait until we can talk about him as an available heart. And I want to read the last poem of this collection, uh, which is called Valentine. February 14, and in my chest, beating a new heart. The call came on a foggy January day, and on my way to the hospital, I thought of you, my heart. I thought of the life of the one who came and offered me a heart. I thought of the one who loved you, and in the midst of the most terrible loss, in the midst of grief, I don't know how to think, someone hurting was giving me at that very moment a heart. I thought of the promise of a long life. I thought of the short life whose heart now lives inside me. I carry you with me, a part of me, like a child, like a birth, being one and being two. My heart, your heart beats and your life has given me new life. I think of you, Valentine, and I honor you with every heartbeat, my heart. So yeah, one thinks of what one has been given, uh, what, and not just by the donor, well, in case of, of uh, bone uh, marrow transplant, it's, it's different, it's a sacrifice of time and pain and extreme pain, dedication and just an act of love. But yeah, having an organ of somebody who died and an organ that is so, that our culture has, you know, uh, attributed so much to it. It's, it's really, and, and that is one of the things that I've been trying to theorize this idea of carry. And I found this philosopher, Rachel Ettinger, who talks about carrions and it's a made up word. She makes, it's hard because she makes a, up a lot of words, but I think I understand that concept of carrions. And carry one another, and that's what I try to process in my poetry and and the things that I'm writing now. Thank you so much. I think that that is the perfect place to pause. We've reached the end of our allotted time. I think all of us that have heard you have been profoundly moved, really inspired, challenged, um, and in awe of the way you blend academic discipline and deep personal experience and communicate those with such humility. Um, so thank you again, Margarita. I'm truly Excellent. grateful and truly honoured. Thank you, Margarita. It's been very moving and I think it was the perfect way to, to end our conversation to demonstrate the power of your poetry and you know what can't be said but in poetry. And so we're really grateful to have hosted you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health. In the next episode, Dita and Ian will be joined by Dr. Sayantani Dasgupta from Columbia University. 
Dita and Ian will talk with Sayantani about her work in health humanities and narrative medicine. This work sits at the intersection of narrative, health and social justice. Sayantani is also a New York Times bestselling author of children's and young adult fiction. So you'll also hear about how Sayantani's fiction writing influences her scholarship and equally how her scholarship influences her fiction writing. To stay up to date with news of season two, you can follow us on Twitter at Convo Arts Health. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.